Insights, solutions, and networking all come together at RSA Conference. Join a global cybersecurity community at rsaconference.com forward slash ITSP MAG24. Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSP Magazine. Every company has a story to tell, from the small startup to the large enterprise, and everything in between. This is one of them. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. Marco. Sean. D to the P to the O. You're rapping now? I'm rapping. <laughs> it's a secret that I'm a rapper. There's a, there's a reason why it's a secret. I didn't know, but uh, <laughs> suit yourself. There you go. No. What, what other things are you keeping secret? It's, That's what I'm wondering. It's purposefully missing the, the word successful. <laughs> <laughs> so, so sometimes I do questions. I left that part out. We, we, have, we have known each other for many, many years. Even before we started the ITSP magazine, we were friends. Uh, and, uh, and still, I find out bits of information <laughs> about you that uh, I'm like, wow, I did not know this. Yeah, and it's, uh, it's, it's cool. It's fine at a friendly level, right? But, and I'm kind of dipping into the conversation here. What if you retain certain information, you keep it secret in an environment where giving that information would benefit you? So how do you do a cost analysis, like cost benefit analysis of what information giving away? The rapper thing, it's okay. You can keep it. I don't, I don't <laughs> keep the rapper thing. Well, that's a great question uh, for our guests. Uh, this is episode two of a two-part series where we're looking at privacy and and how to strategize a privacy program, uh, looking at one and one and more uh, regulations and, and global policies, and here we're going to get into some operationalization of of those things. How do you build a team and and make the decisions and build the right products and collect or not collect the right data? And to, to your point, Marco, it, you have to make some of those decisions. They don't they they might happen automatically, but maybe not too. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I, I was I was talking from a consumer perspective, but yeah. also the business. As we we will refresh in the first uh, episode that we recorded, we did talk about how cleaning up all that information that you may get as a business that probably is not needed, and you become a liability. So we're connecting the two episodes here, but we need to get started with this, and no better way to do that than uh, introduce our guests. Kate Barecki is back on. Thanks, Kate, for uh, for joining us again. Uh, I really enjoyed the the first conversation. Uh, very philosophical, uh, but also very tangible for businesses trying to figure out how to get started with a uh, privacy program. And uh, even more excited now for for this follow up episode to to bring it to uh, the, the feet on the ground, if you will, and uh, the cogs behind the the workflows. So, Kate, uh, a few words about your role at Imperva and uh, why this is an important topic for you. 
Thank you so much for having me back. I am Kate Barecchia, and I am Deputy General Counsel and Global Data Privacy Officer at Imperva. Well, glad to have you back. So do, do you want to get a, a stab at the long kind of question, but more of a thought that I had at the beginning, where you where, where does a company draw a line between what is really needed, what is not, and I guess how do you keep it? I'm thinking anonymizing the data and what's what's the right balance there? Sure. So to take the first question about what do you need, the, the first question I ask business units when they when we go through a data inventory is tell me why you need that piece of data. What's the purpose for which you're collecting it? And if we talk through and they say, you know what, it turns out we don't really need that we're going to stop collecting it. If it ties to something tangible, whether it's your social security number in the United States, because we have to run a background check on you because you're doing, uh, you're touching children, or you know, you're in a child setting, that's a different conversation. So I, I think that's the way you tackle the problem of over collecting data, you really sit down and decide, okay, what do I have? What do I need? And what don't I need? And what changes do I need to make to be in a better place? Because overall, the more data you have, the more you have to protect. And so when you ask about the flip side of that, as an individual, what do I want to provide? I think that very much depends on the setting. So if you're in a healthcare setting and you're about to have surgery, what you should provide is obviously more comprehensive because perhaps withholding something might impact your healthcare outcome in a very negative way. It's very different than if you're subscribing to a magazine and they want to know the last 15 years of your income because why do they need that? Uh, they need it because they want to sell it to their advertisers so that they can get more revenue. And so it's really very context-based. So I'm going to jump down to the very the very bottom of this because in episode one we we looked very high top level down and you kind of said gdpr was the the high watermark use that as the guide kind of build things and define and you even perhaps even can measure uh, success toward the goal of being privacy uh, aware and compliant uh, and then you have your fellow engineers you've been an engineer before where you're building a product and the product has to make uh, a decision in the workflow. And in order to do that, it needs some information. Uh, and so you, you're talking about collecting data, but I'm just thinking, does it, does it have to actually be collected and stored? Uh, I don't know, in the, in the context of GDPR and privacy, or could it be something in memory in the, within the workflow that's being used that, that could put, potentially put the organization at uh, risk of being non-compliant? I think you touched on what I view as one of the greatest, greatest perpetuated myths of GDPR. And there is a segment of society, technological society, I mean, that believes if I'm not storing the data in long-term storage, I'm not processing the data. And processing the data is the term used by GDPR and many other laws. And I think that this common misperception has led to a lot of design choices that are both unfavorable from just a simple design choice 
to how it impacts the consumer. And so this is actually a conversation that I have on a fairly regular basis because processing is defined by law as really any operation that touches the data. So I don't care if it floats through your cash or RAM or wherever you want to do it. If it touched something of yours, you have processed it. Can, can you uh, give a couple of examples maybe of how that happened in an everyday commercial transaction maybe? Sure. So most of us use our credit cards to do transactions, especially after the pandemic, right? We're, we've become much more cashless than we used to be. When you put your credit card on the point of sale, whether tap to pay or chip inside, that terminal has processed your data. So has the so, so whoever the business is providing that point of sale terminal and that point of sale software, they may be the same, they may be different. They are both processors in that context. Additionally, the store where you're making the purchase has also processed your personal data. The store in that case is acting as the controller. Another entity processing your personal data in context, in the context of that transaction is the credit card provider. Um, so they are also processing your data from a banking perspective. So how does this change the way that, because um, in the first episode you talk about privacy versus security, should have access, can have access. How do security and privacy come together to look at what you just described uh, in terms of processing? Because I think security is typically, okay, it's, it's, in a database or in a file system or being transferred between one point or another or stored in the cloud, um, but not necessarily perhaps looking at workflows <laughs> and business processes like you're describing and, and maybe not even looking at all the third-party relationships, um, which are nowadays all driven by APIs. Um, so how... How does security privacy come together to kind of walk through the scenario that you just described? Sure. There's the old adage that you're only as strong as your weakest link, and your weakest link may be you, or it may be a service provider you have. If we look back at the very famous target data breach from, gosh, maybe five, ten years ago, the hackers got in through the refrigerator vendor. Is that where I would expect to compromise a target? No, but in hindsight, it makes total sense. And so it's important that we all look at our ecosystems to see where we might have a potential vulnerability. And so when we look at the different departments throughout an organization, we, we touched on security and privacy, and clearly if a company's building an app, they have an engineering team, or even if they outsource it, they have an engineering team. Uh, what other departments and roles are necessary to really understand the privacy landscape and, and uh, putting a privacy program together? Roles like your own DPO, of course, but what else? So actually, so I'm a data privacy officer, but there's another role with the acronym DPO, which is a data protection officer. And a data protection officer is typically defined by law. Uh, meaning their responsibilities are explicitly set forth in law. And their job is to advocate on behalf of a consumer or an individual 
um, in many ways being the voice against the company. I have worked with a number of wonderful DPOs um, in the protection officer role. That can be a voice depending on your organizational size, your company, the types of data you process. Um, there can be someone like me, obviously. Um, in our organization, the conversations we have are trying to implement privacy by design um, early in the development cycle. So we take a look at, okay, what's your end game? What's your source of the data? What do you need to do with the data? And how can we protect that data? One of the most effective techniques for protecting data is de-identification. So de-identification is also called pseudonymization. And what that means is that at first glance, the data cannot be associated with an individual. So an IP address with no other personal data is considered de-identified information. It's only de-identified and not anonymized because there are lookup tables which exist where you can put in an IP address and match it to somebody. But at first glance, the IP address doesn't say your name or my name or anybody else's name. So when you're running analytics on, gosh, the person at IP address 129 dot is really having issues with accessing this aspect of our platform, it's not affecting that individual in a personal way the way it would if it said, oh, Kate or Marco is having really trouble accessing this part of our SaaS platform. If there is one thing that I, I really like, it's when we we say something in cybersecurity, in security in general, and then we put by design, because that means that we have we've thought about it ahead of the time. Exactly. Which is, which is really rare when it comes to humanity, because we usually are more like sit the, the head in the wall and then, and then we'll figure out what to do. Uh, in this case, uh, I'm wondering if it's uh, based on, on your experience with Imperva, if it's easier to implement it with maybe company with a lower maturity in, in the cybersecurity. So can I start in fresh or it's easier and, 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 and accomplish more when you already have a, a structure that is cybersecurity oriented. So my point is, can you adapt as a company even when you are already at a certain level or it's better to start from the beginning? Everywhere that I have been, we have adapted. Um, so everywhere where I have been, the laws um, in particular GDPR came into effect after the company. Right, so you can't, you have to adapt or you won't survive. So the way I have done it um, in partnership with leaders in development is to say, okay, we're gonna do data protection impact assessments, DPIAs. Now, many laws provide for privacy impact assessments. And yes, I realize that these are silly, slightly different words, but they actually have functionally different outcomes. And so a DPIA is not required by law unless you have a high-risk processing activity. But pragmatically, what I realized in the early days of GDPR is that if I ask a team to do a PIA and then it says, oh, we have high risk, and I ask them to do a second assessment, compliance is going to have become a friction point. If I ask them to do one assessment that covers all the things I need, maybe it's 15 questions more. It's not like it's some 
you know, huge, overwhelming additional effort, and I don't have to double dip with them, they're going to be much happier. And so that's how I decided to solve for that problem. And so in partnership with leaders in development, we do DPIAs at each release cycle. And because the teams know that those DPIAs are coming, we, we have conversations much earlier in the development cycle about, hey, what's going on? What are you planning? Because they don't want to have something come up at release. We do it at release because it's an easy, measurable time to gate something. So if you're building a business process, putting it functionally at that point means it's most likely to occur, right? Because it's part of the release checklist. I love it. One of the one of the things that uh, I often ask folks that I I chat with, uh, mostly around security, but uh, it's come up a couple times in privacy as well, is, is this idea that if you, you can build something, and I was kind of touching on this earlier, as an engineer, you build something and it does something, and then and then at some point somebody comes in and audits it for quality or privacy or security, and you find the holes that then need to be ranked ordered listed these 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 are the top 100 things and you have to hit the you have to hit this level and above in order in order to release and i often find in just in general security operations as well is if if you can take the time up front to say like you were pointing out in, in the previous episode don't collect that data in the first place don't do that transaction like that in the first place don't store the data or don't don't process the data in that way or at, at all. Um, you eliminate a lot of the questions and a lot of the need to prove why it's important, and then perhaps even spending money on implementing controls and, and mitigations to further protect it from security and privacy uh, issues. So, in your experience at Aperva and others, other places, have you seen a process where you've helped shape the development? requirements, the product requirements, if you will, to say, don't collect this data, don't process it that way, design the product this way, store the data this way, such that you eliminate a lot of the audit and post uh, development issues that come up. Yeah, so here at Imperva, the model is a little different because personal data in many of our products is hashed upon intake irreversibly. So that sort of made my life a lot easier, right? Because if you don't have it, you don't have to talk about it. And that was done um, prior to my arrival. We have other on-premise products, which by their nature, you, you know, they may rest upon a database um, and manage database security. You can't exactly hash all the data because you need to know that Jeff made 75 calls to this database that he's not supposed to be touching. Um, so in those, we, the conversations we have are typically more around, hey, are you taking the absolute minimum of what you need in order to enable someone to understand whether it's legit access or a, a potential security incident that's evolving? Um, are you... Uh, mindful of who has access to all that data. So if there's some kind of dashboard that's providing uh, metrics, who has access to that? Is it only the admin? Is it every user? Because if it's every user, that's probably not right. We should talk about that. Um, and I've been fortunate to work in organizations where it's been um, a, a very good partnership. When you explain clearly why we don't want to do that, 
most people want to do the right thing and, and they want to drive toward a successful path, especially because in my role, the voice I'm bringing is often the voice of the customer. Here's what you're going to hear the customer say. Here's what their concern is going to be. Um, and so I, I found those conversations very effective. Over the course of my career, I would say, um, although less here because we hash personal data, um, one of the consistent area of challenges around, is around the use of data for testing. And so one of the biggest concerns is using live data. Number one, do you have a contractual right to do that? If you're a SaaS solution provider and you're, it's your customer's data, do your, do your contracts actually say you won't do that? If so, you can't do that. Um, and another issue is in the testing process, are you e at a minimum de-identifying any personal data or even better, fully anonymizing it? Sometimes, for example, if you're working on a new HR information system, you can't really anonymize the data because you need to know that employee one's data went through all of the parts of the solution correctly. So he needs some kind of random identifier, but it should be random. It shouldn't be his actual employee number as you're doing the testing. So I think those are some good examples of where it's come up in real life. Can I ask you one thing that always makes me really curious if it's even a possibility? And I'm going to go with the GDPR again, because when I go to, to Europe, where, where I'm from, then it applies also to me because I'm there. But if I'm in the U.S., it doesn't. So that, that's already <laughs> like a trip. But the other thing is the right to be forgotten, right? So you're talking about anonymizing everything and, and hash it and all of that, but then when your data is out there, it's so hard to, for me as a consumer to believe that all of a sudden it just disappeared. So how, how do companies handle that, those that used to collect all that information? How do they know that it's not sitting in some database somewhere and somehow the, the cyber criminal are going to find out? I mean, it, it, how does Imperva operate in, in, that, in that case? Sure. So for us, um, we would receive a data subject access request, which is a DSAR. We would typically receive that in our position as a controller. Um, and a controller under GDPR is someone who has freedom of choice. So I always say, if you can do your own jam with the data, you're a controller. If you don't have freedom of choice with what's happening with the data you're processing, then you're a processor. And if you get a DSAR as a processor, your number one job is to pass it along to the controller so the controller can decide what to do and to tell the data subject, hey, we'd love to help you, but we're not the controller, so we're not empowered to act here. Please direct your inquiry to the controller. So how do you operationalize a DSAR? Well, you have a written policy, and each business unit has a written procedure for, hey, I have personal data in these seven databases, and each time a request comes in, I'm going to check these personal, these databases. Now, let's take the example of a former employee, and let's say the employee comes back after five years after leaving and says, I'd like to exercise my right to be forgotten. And in Perva, we honor the person's right no matter where they're from. That's a, it's an ethical decision we have made here. It's not something required by law. But if somebody from California or Georgia or Nebraska or France asks me, we're going to treat the request the same, no matter where they came from. 
So we would take a look at our DSAR process. First thing we do is we authenticate the individual. Also required by law, but common sense. Are you really who you claim to be? Because I don't, I shouldn't be actioning anybody's data. You can imagine somebody's in a bitter divorce or they're being stalked online or insert terrible circumstance. You don't want to act on somebody's data without being sure they are who they are. And you don't want to get any more personal data than you had at the beginning. So the way that I authenticate people is I say, thank you so much. We're required by law to the extent it applies to your request to make sure you are who you say you are. Could you please tell us how we came to have your data? And most times they'll say, I signed up for a free trial or I did this or I did that. No problem. Okay, we can we can validate that against what we have. And if it's right, we're happy to take care of it for you. And if it's not, we'll come back and say, well, are you sure? Maybe not. Let's check on that. And we'll work with the person to make sure. Um, once we've authenticated someone, we would then have the business units action their individual DSAR procedures. So they check their databases, they report back, um, and they say, hey, we have this data, we have that data. Now, our hypothetical is a former employee. By law, we are required to keep certain employee information for a period of anywhere from seven to, I think, 50 years in some countries. Um, interestingly, Poland has a visitor's log that you have to keep forever in case there's like an asbestos or other work injury claim. So really how long you have to keep it depends on the country and depends on the law that apply, might apply to that data. So let's take a slightly different hypothetical. Let's say it's a US employee and they come back after 15 years and they say, I'd like to exercise my right to be forgotten. We would take a look. If there are no laws that require the retention of that data, we would delete their data. If there were laws that permitted, um, and I've had this case arise, frankly, oh, quite often in Europe, if there were laws that permitted us um, to delete some parts of their data, but required us to keep other parts of their data, whether it's for tax or uh, other purposes, um, we would say, we've been able to delete items 1 through 10. We're not able to delete items 11 through 20. Also, in today's world, most people have backup tapes. I don't know what's on every backup tape, but I know we got them. I also know we cycle them periodically. And so what I typically tell people, because the burden of reactivating every single tape would be prohibitive just to search for this one piece of data, say some of your data might remain on a backup tape. As those tapes cycle, it will also be deleted. Um, and that's been a very positive experience so far. Yeah, and I was uh, I was hoping we get uh, an an option to simplify. Things. <laughs> it seems, seems there's there's always the edge case of, of something going that uh, introduces a challenge. And I, yeah, the whole point of I mean, companies rely on disaster recovery and backups and and things like that to remain resilient, and uh, they may need to pull a. a a data set in because they were compromised. <laughs> if, if that data is old, that set is old, then they have to pull in data that should have been forgotten. Uh, they have to remember to, to take care of the request as well. And I, I guess the reason I'm going there is that it brings me to the point of where there's an overlap of collaboration, perhaps between security and privacy. And are there any cases where 
um, in your example of the of the, the the Poland requirement, where keep it forever, right? You're going to have that situation where it's going to counter anything else you say, or anything else that the laws require. So, how does security and privacy work together? And are there areas of of conflict there where perhaps the control goes against privacy requirements or privacy requirements change the way a security team can can put mitigating controls in that both of them I think ultimately lead to my favorite word at the end of the last episode which was risk um, who makes the final call if there are discrepancies there to answer that question first who makes the final call depends upon the issue and the risk and the organizational culture as well. So let's take an issue. Let's say there's a conflict and security wants to do something, but it's black and white prohibited by a regulation in a certain area. The legal team would say, this is prohibited by law. And it would be the responsibility of the security team to take that advice and action it appropriately. Um, when you're talking about um, controls, I think there are some great examples of where effective collaboration can be a really win-win situation for the organization. Um, a recent topic of conversation is an acceptable use policy, right? So the security team and the IT team have a vested interest in what uh, what is permissible to do on our computers and what's not. And within our industry, we're not uh, a bank, right? We're not financially regulated. We don't have to keep seven years of every single email that somebody sent because you have to produce it to the SEC on demand. I've worked in companies like that, but that's not here. So when we talk about acceptable use in many countries um, and in many states within the United States, employees in 2022 have a reasonable expectation of privacy. But security has a competing interest in not prevent, in preventing, I should say, in preventing corporate secrets or confidential information from leaving the organization. So those two, um, both very important objectives, are competing interests. So how do you balance those? You balance those by the privacy team working with the security team to take a look at the technology. Okay, what is the technology actually doing? How frequently are you getting alerts um, that data has been exported? Of those, how often are those false alerts? Of those, who has access to the alerts and to the data that's been shared? And having a holistic conversation about minimizing access to that information and minimizing the invasiveness of the tool used are important conversations to have. The way we manage that here is through the DPIA. So what do you have? Who has access to it? Where is it going? How long are we keeping it? And what are we doing with it? And in the spirit of conversations, I'm going to, as we wrap here, I'm going to put this question to you and either you can bundle it all together in a single response, or maybe look at this from uh, the people process and technology perspective, three different slices. Um, your final thoughts on how our listeners can begin to take action. What, what, what should they know about the current privacy landscape, the most likely environment that they're working in now, and how can they 
how can they take some steps forward? Again, people process technology, but thoughts on teams, thoughts on uh, the organizational structure and, and how things work, and then thoughts on technologies to perhaps help with some of that. Yeah, so taking the people part first, I think it's important to include people in the conversation who have an open mind. Um, are you willing to take a hard look at what you've been doing in the past? Is that serving you today? Or is there a possibly a better way to do something and achieve an even greater outcome? It's really, really important that when people come to privacy or security conversations, that that's an aspect of the mentality they bring. Obviously, you want people who are knowledgeable, both in the marketplace, like what, what technology providers are out there, what services do they offer, where do we feel we're weak, where do we feel we're strong, how do we feel we fit into our customer's landscape, how are our vendors fitting into our landscape, and are we in the right place, and making sure we have documented processes in place, so written SOPs or other documents that say, here are the criteria we apply, Here's how we apply them. So no matter how, who you ask, what day you ask, or what time you ask, you get the same response, right? These are my five criteria. It's Monday, Tuesday, Thursday. You're getting the same five criteria every day. That's, that's actually one of the biggest breakdowns I've seen throughout organizations is inconsistency in application. And that's what frustrates people. When people know they're going to get the same ask the same way each time, they develop a level of comfort and they're also able to come prepared and confident to the conversation, which leads to more positive outcomes all the way around. And I assume that we, we can expect uh, regulation to be expanding and, and going into more states and uh, and in a very complex uh, you know global economy so that's kind of I think if you at least are ready and minimize all you have to worry about I'm not saying it's an easy task because it seems pretty <laughs> pretty gigantous there but uh, at least you're onto something you don't have to worry about too many things so uh, I don't know. Well, it's, it's a, yeah, it's Kate a made a, good, a gazillion good points. But one one of your final points, Kate, to use the word outcome, and to me that seems super important. Uh, if you can have that in mind, whatever the driver is for the outcome that you want, whether it's literally just to meet the checkbox of of compliance, or whether you want it to help drive a better security and privacy program, or whether you want it to fulfill your ambitious ESG goals, whatever the drivers are, having an outcome in mind will then give you something to shoot for and, and, and at least you know where you're going. <laughs> so you right. A finite measure of success. Yes. And as you mentioned in the first episode as well, uh, GDPR is a nice, uh, a nice target uh, as a high watermark to, to lead most of everything else. So um, great conversation. Uh, uh, I mean, when I typically talk about this, it, we really easily shift over to security. And I think we, we stayed a lot with the privacy aspect of this um, and some really good examples, Kate, on uh, use cases you've encountered and ch challenges you've overcome and hopefully some good insights for folks to, to take with them as they build out or expand or refine their, their privacy programs. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure.
And uh, thanks everybody for listening to this episode. There'll be links to uh, some resources and to Kate's uh, profile and links to Imperva. And uh, you can, I know there are some notes on, on their site for how they handle privacy and, and the masking and, and everything that they do there. So lots of good information. And again, Kate, thanks for, thanks for being part of this and stay tuned, everybody. We hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you learned something new and the story made you think, then share ITSBmagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Insights, solutions, and networking all come together at RSA Conference. Join a global cybersecurity community at rsaconference.com forward slash ITSP MAG 24.